The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Georges Benjamin. He has been the executive director of the American Public Health Association since 2002, and he is widely recognized as one of our nation's most influential physician leaders shaping our national health policy. He is also one of our nation's top experts in public health emergency preparedness. From his firsthand experience as a physician, Dr. Benjamin knows what happens when preventive care is not available and when the healthy choice is not the easy one. Dr. Benjamin is a graduate of the University of Illinois College of Medicine, and he is board certified in internal medicine. He has had an extensive career in policy research, academia, and medicine, including serving as chief of emergency medicine at Walter Reed Army Medical Center. He is the author of more than 200 scientific articles and book chapters. His recent book, Public Health Under Siege, Improving Policy in Turbulent Times, explores the impact of policy on our nation's health and offers specific actions to improve health and extend life expectancy. He's also the author of The Quest for Health Reform, A Satirical History, which is an expose of the nearly 100-year quest to ensure quality, affordable health coverage for all using political cartoons. He has been named one of the top minority executives in healthcare. Welcome, Dr. Benjamin. Hi, I'm glad to be here. Well, I heard you speak most recently at the Association of Healthcare Journalists meeting in St. Louis. And there you addressed multiple health impacts of climate change. And I thought we could focus on some of those today. But before we dive in, I'm really curious to know what inspired you to dedicate your career to public health. Well, you know, I I was an emergency physician for the first half of my career. And quite frankly, the mayor of Washington, D.C. called me one day and said, have I got a job for you? And so I did that for almost two years. And it, it was just a phenomenal experience the idea of really improving people's health through policy, certainly I just fell in love with and I decided to stay. I do miss clinical medicine, but policy works. It's so necessary and it touches our lives everywhere. And I don't think we realize the power of it. Your website, the American Public Health Association, is www.apha.org. And I want to lead people to that website. If you put a slash climate after that, you will find a wealth of information. And I want to dive into some of those resources. You made it very clear in St. Louis that climate change is a threat multiplier. What did you mean by that? First of all, it impacts our health and it's happening right now. Obviously, people die acutely from heat stroke. People have more heart attacks. They have more lung problems, respiratory conditions get exacerbated with the heat. But you know, it's so hot in some parts of the United States that if you touch the pavement, you get a second or third degree burn. It's that hot in some places. And so 
this is really a problem. And we know that climate change is the result of what we do as human beings. Our burning of fossil fuels is a major contributor to climate change. And we also know that we can change all this by reducing you know, our carbon footprint, reducing our use of fossil fuels. But stubbornly, we've really refused to do it. And it has a long tail. Our ability to turn this around will take a long period of time, and we're behind the curve. Yes, we are. And I think that when we talk about individual choice versus national policy, there's a big difference. Yes, we can all change our light bulbs. We can drive less, et cetera. But really, we need that national policy. What can we as citizens do to move the dial from a policy perspective? Well, I think, first of all, understand the problem that we're in. And then engage with your elected officials, the people that hold the purse strings, the people that make laws, the people that can actually make this stuff happen. You know, you asked me earlier about the difference really in being an ER doc, where we can do amazing things in the hospital emergency department to save your life, to put you back together. Medicine, acute medicine is a wonderful skill set. But you know, when you can do something pretty simple and change the health outcomes for hundreds of millions of people because of something relatively simple that you do, that makes a lot of sense to me. And that's why I made my transition. So for example, we know that if we could stop many of the emissions that are occurring from some of our power plants, we have the ability to green our power plants in this country. We have the ability to go to electric cars, go from these gas guzzlers that we have onto certainly hybrid and then hopefully all an all-electric fleet. We have the capacity to do that, to dramatically change the poisons we put in our environment, which is destroying the climate and, of course, destroying our planet. What do you say to people who are still in a state of denial? I give them my best advice. As a physician, I usually tell people, look, here's why I think this way. I strongly encourage them to do things that will improve their health. And I try to do that in a way that I don't demonize them. I don't blame them. I try to coax them along. And then, you know, there are people who are not necessarily opposed to doing it, but it's work. And they don't necessarily feel it's their goal in life. That's not what they get up every morning to do. But for those of us who do, I think we should work very hard to address climate change. I do know that there are people out there who, for a variety of political, ideological, and in some cases financial reasons, are pretending that climate change is not real. They know the environment is warm, and they've just got their heads in the sand. And you asked me about political cartoons. I once saw this political cartoons of aliens coming in and doing an archaeological dig on our planet. And as they got to a certain layer, they called this the fossil fool's layer. You know, you can picture that. And it was a a phenomenal political cartoon. I don't remember who the cartoonist was, so I want to credit the amazing cartoonists, uh, even though I don't remember their name, did it. But it was an important statement that, you know, the planet's going to be here, but we may not be the predominant species on the planet. And that's what we need to understand. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up the cartoons because I had no idea they were such a powerful tool. What is it about cartoons that draws your attention? 
Well, you know, they can convey a very complex set of ideas with very simple, even one frame concept. And for me, they're funny. People laugh at them, but they tend to take, in some cases, the politicization, even though they may be political cartoons, out of the equation because people look at them and they don't necessarily feel threatened. And the book that we wrote on the 100-year history of the Affordable Care Act, we tried to tell that history and point out that for 100 years, we've been having the same debate around healthcare reform. And if you look at political cartoons around climate change, you will see that they talk about the influence of the fossil fuel industry, the influence of the political fat cats that control some of these things. And in many ways, it's a phenomenal way to speak truth to power. And I just think we should do more of it. I agree. We need to use all the tools in the toolbox. One of our biggest foes really is the public relations firms that keep promoting doubt about fossil fuels and their harm to our health and the planet. I wish we had a public relations firm for public health. You know, that's one of the challenges we do have. We don't often have the resources to fight back against very, very expensive media campaigns, communications campaigns that we saw. We saw this during COVID. We had people putting out misinformation and in some cases, purposeful disinformation. And we're doing the work. We roll up our sleeves. We try to save lives. We try to help people. We try to inform people. But unless you have the resources to be really dedicated to getting the right information in front of people, then you're always going to be chasing the issue. And we believe, I think there's a lot of good evidence that if you give people the good information, people are able to make sound decisions most of the time. But what happens is people end up in their own ecosystem where they're hearing the same stuff from one particular source all the time. And they're getting the wrong information. And they may not, in some cases, not know they're getting the wrong information because that's all they're hearing. Right. And so what we're hoping to do at some point, of course, is to have the ability to enter those conversations, to have a, a substantive debate with people who we disagree with. So we don't want to censor them. We just want to have that debate because I believe that when you give people good information and when we're right, they will follow our guidance and do the right thing. Right. I really appreciate many of the resources on your website, one of which is Climate Storytelling, a Quick Guide. And this is a really easy, quick fact sheet, but it explains how there is power in personal story and how as much as we may hate to hear this, the stories are more powerful than statistics and numbers people's eyes tend to glaze over when we have a climate change discussion that includes a lot of numbers and statistics. But personal stories of people who have suffered through climate impacts, I think, make a powerful impact. What do you think? There's no question that people relate not just to what they see, but what they hear. And when they hear a story of somebody who has a situation similar to theirs, where the outcome may be the same or the outcome may be different, but they become relatable. They become real people. You know, saying that if 
we don't do something for climate change and the glaciers will melt and we will lose the polar bears is a terrible, terrible thing to hear. But a better story is the fact that when we have this climate change, we get wildfires and we get wildfires, the air gets polluted. And then when Johnny and Susie go out to run, they can't breathe. And you think about that, you know, we have a lot of people in this country with asthma. So if you're a person who has asthma or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and someone tells you about their experience with uh, wildfires and poor air quality, you can relate to that story because you've had that problem yourself. And so I think trying to help people connect the dots is what storytelling is all about. And it raises the visibility of things where people may not necessarily have connected a particular issue with another particular issue. And one of the challenges with climate change is that people kind of see it, but they haven't quite connected all the dots. Exactly. Well, you've got an excellent list of fact sheets at the APHA.org website, and I will make that available to our listeners in the show notes so that we can all download some of these excellent pieces of information. I need to take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are joined today by Dr. Georges Benjamin. He has been the executive director of the American Public Health Association since 2002. He is widely recognized as one of our nation's most influential physician leaders and one of the top experts in public health emergency preparedness. I heard him speak in St. Louis at the Association of Healthcare Journalists meeting where the topic was climate change, and that is what we are discussing today. Dr. Benjamin, I want to go to that list of fact sheets because you brought up asthma, and I feel like I can get my head around climate change and high temperatures, but there's so much more to heat. For example, I had no idea that having a higher temperature makes asthma worse because it worsens air quality from particulate matter. You know, it's that kind of extension of understanding the risks of heat that I think is very important. No, there's no question about that. Like I said, we have to help people connect all the dots for these things. And it's not a far-fetched for people to remember that on a really hot day, particularly a hot, humid day, even people who don't have underlying lung disease, when you step outside, it's difficult to take that area. And then imagine someone who has airways which constrict when they get inflamed. Then they get inflamed because of some of the matter that's in the air that doesn't get moved when the temperature gets hot. And so the particulate matter stagnates in the air, as one example. And then, of course, people are out, still out driving their cars. People are still out mowing their grass. And you know, when the temperature and the humidity hit a certain point in various communities, we call them cold red days. And we put out a public health alert to tell people that it's hot, it's difficult. If you have heart disease or lung disease, you're going to be at higher risk. And we do that on purpose to try to give people a heads up to take it easy when they go out. We also do that to remind people that they need to stay well hydrated. You know, one of the really big things that happens is people just don't drink enough water. We really don't probably drink enough water anyway. 
but they certainly don't drink enough water in, on these really hot days. And that's a real challenge. Right. I also want to commend you for having a region-specific series of fact sheets. For example, health impacts of climate change in Alaska, the Midwest, the Northeast. And so I pulled down the one on Alaska, and I had no idea that Alaska warmed twice as fast as the rest of the U.S. from 1949 to 2011. We don't read these kinds of facts in the news. No, and the the overall thought is that there's regional variation. You know, we think a lot, well, Florida and Texas get real hot, but Alaska's real cold. Well, it, it is sometimes, but it does have a seasons, and it's further to the north, which means theoretically it's closer to the North Pole, and theoretically it can get colder. But also, if you're really cold and the temperature changes, you're also likely to melt sooner. So I think the, the way people have to think about this is that in every region of this country, there are different impacts from climate change. But at the end of the day, it results in extreme weather events. And so, yeah, there's more snow than there should be in some places. There's less snow in some places than they historically have been. There's more heat in some places. They should have and less heat in other places. And, you know, when you're on the cusp, you're in a community that, you know, you have a nice, moderately warm summer, but now you're having extreme heat. Your buildings weren't built to protect you from extreme heat. You don't have air conditioning routinely. Your power grid isn't designed to handle lots of people turning on their air conditioners at the same time. People don't have backup generators. And we're an aging society. You know, all of us baby boomers are moving through the society and we've not really built the protections for a society that's aging that we have right now. And we know that people who are at the extremes of age, older and younger, are at higher risk for heat-related injury. I'm glad you brought up age differences because I want to focus on children and pregnant women. Because here was another surprise to me when I started learning about how heat can impact pregnancy and birth outcomes. And then, of course, the impact on children who are less able to manage heat. What do you want our listeners to know about that particular vulnerable population? Several things happen when a woman is pregnant, of course, is that there are hormonal changes. She's carrying around a developing fetus and she's carrying around more weight. There are higher complications just because a woman is pregnant. And normal pregnancies, a woman who's normally pregnant and going through a very hot spell, it gets put at a higher risk. It puts more strain on her heart from the pregnancy. But in addition to that, that the heat and humidity adds an additional strain on their heart. So all of those things put pregnant women more at risk. And then if you add the fact that you know, we all have medical conditions. And for someone who has additional medical conditions, maybe high blood pressure or diabetes, those underlying diseases put additional strains on their body, and then they get exacerbated by the heat. So women who are pregnant are not going to do as well in higher heat conditions. And so therefore, they need to drink more fluids. They need to make sure they're eating more healthy, of course. And we need to get them out of the sun and get them out of the heat because it's a higher risk for them while they're pregnant. Right. Well, once again, you've got a fact sheet on this. You 
title these fact sheets, Making the Connections. So this one has to do with climate changes and children's health. I can understand dehydration. I can understand an increased risk from vector-borne diseases, but I had no idea that stunted growth was also related to a climate change impact on children's health. Yeah, you know, again, the body is a phenomenal ecosystem. And our hormones are influenced by a range of environmental factors. And those hormones determine how we develop over time. And children are not little adults. They are evolving human beings. And as they grow, they are impacted by what they eat, anything they put in their bodies, the exposures that they have, whether it is air, whether hopefully clean air, but medications and what we put in their foods. And so all those things have a phenomenal influence on children's health, and heat is no different. Right. I want to go back to your regional fact sheets for a moment. We talked about Alaska. There are many regions in the country that are more susceptible to flooding. And whenever I think of flooding, I think of mold. Again, another adjunct to the flooding risks that maybe we don't talk about enough As an emergency physician and someone who has studied internal medicine, what do you want us to know about the mold infestations that can happen after a flooding event? Yeah, well, floods are big problems because, first of all, several things happen when you get an overabundance of rain, which you get when you have heat and particularly extreme heat like we're having. Think about it. Every day we know that we have these really hot days. Then in the evening, you generally have some kind of rainstorm. And when the um, waters cannot handle it because the ground is either overly saturated or undersaturated, you get floods in those communities. And particularly the contaminated water, when it goes into the wells, into the groundwater, then you can get infections from drinking that water. You can have the water when you have a, a flood that inundates a home or a structure. That water gets into the walls. It allows mold to grow. And mold is terribly, terribly toxic particularly the people's airways. There are people who are environmentally very sensitive from an allergic perspective to mold. But even the, the people that are not historically very allergic to mold can be significantly impacted and made very sick from the mold that goes into those buildings. And by the way, it's also very expensive because you quite often have to just take the wall down, demolish parts of the structure, and rebuild them just to get rid of the mold. It's not like simply wiping the walls down when mold really gets mold infestation in your facility, your home. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought this up because the remediation is so expensive. And for people living at or near poverty levels, there's really no way out. They are stuck. Well, I think that's one of the things you're pointing out now is the fact that while lower income individuals, because they are lower income and they don't necessarily spend as much. They're not as polluting to the environment as those of us who have more resources. So they are disproportionately impacted because they don't have often the resources to respond to climate change, to the impact of climate change. So think about all those people that were hit with those hurricanes um, in Florida and Texas. And we're still many of them that are living under tarps. Many of them homes were underwater. They had mold. They didn't have insurance because they couldn't afford insurance for their homes. And so those people are disproportionately impacted. And by the way, that's a global phenomenon. 
lower income countries, same thing. Their contribution to climate change is much less, but their impact to climate change is much more. And at least their the harm that climate change causes to them is much more. And their ability to respond to it is much less. Exactly. And I don't know how to be politically involved at that level. I'll give you another example. And that is when I heard a report about the temperatures in some prisons. So we know, for example, that prisons are more populated by people with brown and dark skin. And we know that it's a poverty issue. You've taught us over the years that racism is a public health issue. Short of lawsuits, how do we get systems to change when politicians have heard from us, but still don't make the right judgment calls when it comes to changing policies, just to create a more humane environment and a safer one? Yeah, the the tragedy is this country has more people behind bars than other industrialized nations in the world. And then, granted, those people are there to be punished, rehabilitated, and habilitated. And I won't pass judgment on why they're there behind bars. I was that part of the adjudication process that put them there, but that's our system. But we should treat them humanely when they are behind bars. And that means when you're in an institution and you can't get out, we want to make sure that people aren't suffering in any environment. And in prisons, when they're behind the walls and it's very, very hot, they don't have air conditioning in most of those places. Access to water is highly limited, again, because they're in a small cell. And even if you allow people yard privileges and let them get outside, they're outside in a yard under the sun. And then, of course, in some places, they may be doing work as part of their duties there at the prison. We need to treat people humanely. We need to make sure they're well hydrated. We need to make sure that they get the medical care they deserve. Yes, they should receive the appropriate justice for being where they are, but that does not mean we should treat people inhumanely. And so I'm very concerned when I hear about that. And my advice, of course, is to sue, is to get justice organizations involved. Talk to the prison ombudsman is a great place to start. Write your elected members of city council or county council, your mayors, your governors, and the White House, and let them know that you will not tolerate people being treated inhumanely, but certainly you know, recognize that, that justice needs to be preserved. Absolutely. Dr. Benjamin, we are out of time, but I want to give you a chance to leave our listeners with anything with regard to climate and how it changes health. Climate change is here is impacting our health today. You have an opportunity to both work on this as an individual by trying to green your own environment, reducing your own carbon footprint, encouraging the place you work to do so, and educate yourself and then get involved on the national level to encourage our nation to move much more effectively and much more swiftly to address climate change. Our lives are dependent on us doing that, and the lives of our children and their health is dependent on your ability to do that. Thank you so much. And the website, the American Public Health Association, is www.apha.org backslash climate. It is an excellent resource. 
I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Georges Benjamin, Executive Director of the American Public Health Association and a national leader when it comes to public health emergency preparedness and shaping our national health policy. Thank you so much for your decades of devotion, Dr. Benjamin. Thank you.